So we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4 this morning, Ruth chapter 4. Um, we started off the book of Ruth by noting that Ruth has two settings, two settings. It has a historical setting, and the historical setting, it takes place during the time of the judges, but it also has a literary setting that actually in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth kind of more closely belongs with Proverbs and with the book of uh, Lamentations and with the book of Job. And, uh, and so Ruth, like those other books, one of the purposes of Ruth is really trying to answer the question of suffering. And so we saw that in Ruth chapter 1, we, we saw that uh, it starts off on a note of suffering and, and how to bring that. There, there's this man named Elimelech, and Elimelech... Uh, there's a famine that comes, and so Elimelech has to sell his land to sustain his family in suffering. And uh, so they they go into a foreign land. They go into the land of Moab, and Elimelech dies, and his wife Naomi is left. And their two sons, Malon and Kilian, marry, but then they die. And so it's Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, not Ruth and Oprah. And uh, they they. They decide they're going to go back to Israel, and Ruth encourages Ruth and Orpah to go home, and yet Ruth and Orpah, or Orpah decides that she's going to go back, but Ruth says that great confession of faith in, in chapter 1, that uh, your God will be my God, and your people will be my people, and so Ruth goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem, and when uh, Naomi gets to Bethlehem, the whole town is stirred, and the, there's kind of the the... The, uh, all the women in the town are, are talking amongst themselves and they're asking, Did, is this really Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi because that means happy or blessed. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And that's really how the, the book of Ruth starts out is this, this bitterness and this brokenness of, uh, of the question of suffering. And yet we see in the midst of that that God is kind and God brings uh, Ruth, who is gleaning behind the workers in the field, God brings Ruth to the field of a man named Boaz. And turns out that Boaz is someone who can redeem their family. Boaz is someone who can buy the land back and who through uh, Naomi can produce heirs. And so Boaz is really somebody who is uh, prom- who, who looks like God has kind of providentially brought them there. And Boaz is a man of character and integrity. And yet the months go by. We saw this last week. The months go by and Boaz does not act. He doesn't redeem Ruth like we kind of expect him to. And so Ruth and Naomi kind of um, a little bit put him on the spot. And Ruth says, you're a redeemer. Why haven't you, know, why haven't you redeemed me? And, and Boaz says, uh, well, I haven't done it because there's somebody nearer than I. And yet uh, I, will, I will deal with this. I, if, if he won't redeem you, I will. And you can trust me. As the Lord lives, he says, wait until morning. We ended chapter three uh, kind of on this note of expectation and of waiting and there's unresolved tension and we're, we're waiting for this last obstacle to become overcome and we're waiting to see what how Boaz is going to figure this out and and it kind of feels like Ruth and Boaz should belong together and yet yeah I don't know there's somebody who's closer to them and we're, we're kind of waiting to see what happens and so we start in Ruth chapter 4 this is God's word it says this now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it, said to it, I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. 
But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is none besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Father in heaven, one more time, we pray that you would open up your word to us, that you'd help us to see it and to enjoy it and to know it and to love it and to savor it. Pray for these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So we see the story starts out that Boaz goes out to the gate of the town. Now, the gate of the town is kind of where all the the social engagements would happen. It's kind of where the the town hall, the courthouse, kind of the the commons. And and so Boaz goes to the gate of the town, and he waits for this other redeemer to pass by. And so he pulls aside this other redeemer, says, sit down. And then he pulls aside 10 men of the city. These are probably older men who who had sons and grandsons to work in the field, and they were just kind of hanging out and uh, talking jaw, and they're just kind of, uh, you know, doing whatever. He says, hey, stop wasting your time. Get over here. And so he gathers 10 of these elders around him, and, and he starts into this, uh, starts into this discussion with the other Redeemer. And he's, he kind of lays out the situation. He says, okay, you, you know Naomi. Naomi, the, the wife of Elimelech, when they were still here, they had to sell the land, and, and it needed to be redeemed, yet Naomi and Elimelech went into a foreign country. But Naomi has come back, and the land that is supposed to stay in their family, it needs to be redeemed. Somebody's got to buy it. Now, if you're a good businessman, this is kind of an appealing opportunity because you could buy this land back and there's no heir that's obvious for Naomi and for Elimelech. Elimelech's dead, his sons are dead, and you could potentially double the size of your estate. It seems like a pretty good opportunity, pretty good deal. And so uh, Boaz says, look, if you don't want to redeem it, I will. I'll take care of this. You just tell me what you want to do. And the other redeemer says, well, I'll do it. It sounds like a good idea. It's not, he kind of lays it out in the most optimistic terms, gives them all the pros, and, uh, and so the other Redeemer says, okay, I got it. And then Boaz kind of gives him the catch, starting in verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest, my, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning, our, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Now, um, Boaz kind of gives him the catch. And here's the catch, is that Boaz says, the deal is, though, if you buy this land, if you redeem it, if you bring it back into the family, and that's the goal, they want to get the land to stay in the family, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. And, and through Ruth, you will bring about heirs to inherit the land. That's, see, that's the, the, the goal. And all of this is that the land will stay within the family. There's this process in the Old Testament called leveret marriage, which is that when a a widow did not have any children, uh, the nearest relative of her late husband was to uh, take her as his wife and to bring about heirs to inherit the land. And the whole goal of all of this is so that the land stays in the family. They want the land to stay in the family. And Ruth needs a redeemer. She needs someone who's in the family to bring about heirs so that the land stays in the family. Now, this is where it gets interesting, because the other Redeemer, he seems like a great idea until he remembers that Ruth exists, and he says, yeah, I'm okay. I don't really want that. And he does this weird thing with the sandal. Like, what is the deal with the sandal? He takes off his sandal, and most of you probably don't want us to do that, to take off our shoes. And So what is going on here? And he tells him to do it. Well, 
I kind of had always assumed that this is a pretty benign action to take off the sandal and just to give it um, to another person. And yet, actually, this is rooted in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And uh, we see this in Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in the land of Israel. And so that's kind of what we've already said is this process of leveret marriage that if, if there's a, a childless widow, the nearest relative of her late husband is to go in and take her as his wife and to produce heirs so that, uh, so that he can perpetuate the name of his brother. And yet Deuteronomy 25 deals with this problem. What happens if, the, uh, if that person, who's the redeemer, who's supposed to do, take care of them this way, refuses? And it says this, And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. So if this man refuses to do what he's obligated to do by the law, if he refuses to uh, perpetuate the name of his brother, if he refuses to keep the inheritance in the family, then the wife of his brother is to take the sandal off his foot and spit in his face and declare to everyone who's there, this is someone who refuses to do what he's obligated to do. And this is an act of great shame. I mean, most of us today, we, we wouldn't appreciate if someone just spit in our face in public, but this is a shame-honor culture. And so for, for to receive somebody to take your shoe off your foot and to spit in your face is a very degrading thing. It causes somebody to lose face in the eyes of the, uh, the community and of the society. It's, it's all about this shame-honor thing. Well, when in Ruth 4, the Redeemer takes his own sandal off his foot, what he is saying is, I would rather endure that shame. I'd rather have you spit in my face. I'd rather give away my shoe. I'd rather absorb that shame and lose face than bring about heirs for Elimelech and for Ruth and for Malon. He's saying, I'll take it myself. You don't need to spit in my... I'll, I'll, I'll give away my honor myself. I refuse to do it. That's what's happening here. This is very negative. This is a very indignant. This is a very bitter man who refuses to do this. Well, why won't he do it? And that's like a... That's a big deal to, to receive that kind of shame in the eyes of your community. That's a big deal to receive that kind of dishonor, to lose that much face in the name of your community. Well, it comes down to verse 6. He says, lest I impair my own inheritance. And that word impair could also, and I think probably should be translated something like corrupt. It's the Hebrew word shechat. And he's saying that to bring about heirs for Ruth, or, or for Elimelech through Ruth, would corrupt his own inheritance. We, that there's something about Ruth 
that he believes will corrupt him, that if he produces heirs for root, that he will be corrupted. This is what we today might call racism, that he has a prejudice against people from Moab, and he, he, he doesn't care that she's now a worshiper of the Lord. He, he doesn't care about that, that there's this kind of racist, hateful attitude that he has towards Ruth. And you can see here how Boaz has been trying to give him every opportunity. Boaz is still acting with integrity. He's still trying to make this an attractive idea. He's still trying to show. And yet this man is indignant and he refuses to do what he was obligated to do. He refuses to help out the the widow. He refuses to to, uh, act with justice and kindness and generosity in regard to the family of Elimelech. And, And I think it's so telling that this other person doesn't get a name in Ruth 4. See, he was supposed to perpetuate the name of Elimelech and perpetuate the name of Malon and Kilion. But because he refuses to perpetuate the name, to to keep that family alive, his own name is cut off. And because he refuses to make them be remembered, he himself is forgotten. And so after this display, Boaz speaks starting in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What we see here in this passage is that Boaz says, if he won't do it, I will. And you all see that I am doing what he won't. I am taking this responsibility on myself, that I'm taking this obligation on myself, and I am stepping into the mess. I'm the one who will step in, and I'm the one who will redeem, and I will buy out of disuse, and I will give the redemption price to get the land back into the family. And through Ruth, I will bring about heirs for Elimelech and Malon and Kilian, that the, that the land and the family will not be cut off. And all the people who are around give this blessing. They say, we see that. We're witnesses of it. And they, they, they bless uh, Ruth. And they say that they ask that Ruth would be like three women, Rachel and Leah and Tamar. Uh, these three women are from the Old Testament book of Genesis. So I'm going to summarize some of their story a little bit. If you remember, Jacob, because he had ticked off his older, bro- his older brother Esau, uh, ran away to a far country, and I'm an older brother, so I get it, And because uh, he's afraid that his older brother is going to kill him. And so he runs off into a far country, and, and uh, he meets this woman who's just beautiful, the woman of his dreams, and he comes to, the, to uh, her father and says, what will it take for me to, to marry Rachel? And of course, uh, her father uh, Laban says, well, if you work for me for seven years. And so, of course, it it says that um, Jacob worked for Laban for seven years as though it were one day. And and he gives all this time and this energy so he can marry Rachel. And yet, uh, 
he goes in and there's a ceremony and he, there's an open bar and all the, all the beverages are flowing and he goes in and, and, and he's married to Rachel, but he wakes up the next morning and he realizes it's not Rachel, it's Leah. And so he comes to Laban, he says, what gives? What's the deal? And Laban says, well, you know, I can't marry off my younger daughter before I marry off my older daughter. And Jacob says, well, I would like, still like to marry Rachel. He says, well, you work for me for seven more years. And so they work for seven more years, and it's married. And you see that there's this jealousy and there's this envy between Rachel and Leah because Rachel is more loved than Leah. And yet God gives to Leah a whole slew of children that she he gives to Leah all these these heirs and these children and Rachel is barren and Rachel is isn't able to bear until finally the Lord looks on her with kindness and provides children through Rachel and so it's through Rachel and Leah that come the 12 patriarchs and from the 12 patriarchs come the people of Israel and then there's the, they they also say may she be like Tamar this one is a little bit more scandalous sorry and the story of Tamar is told in Genesis 38. And uh, in Genesis 38, we see that Judah, one of the children of, of um, Jacob, has a, three sons of his own. He has Ur, and he has Onan, and he has Shimei. And so um, he finds a wife for his oldest son, Ur. And God is not pleased with Ur, so God strikes him down dead. Ur's out of the picture. Ur is gone. Well, we have just learned what happens in Leveret marriage. When, when there's a childless orphan, the brother of the late husband is supposed to produce heirs for the widow. And yet Onan despises his brother and refuses to do that. And God strikes him down as well. Just to point this out, God is on the side of the widows and the orphans. And God is a husband to the widow. Okay. And... and Onan refuses it. So, well, Judah looks at, looks at Tamar, and he thinks Tamar's the problem, not his idiot sons. So he's like, ah, this is a black widow. Why don't you go home, stay in your father's house. She goes back, she stays in father's house until Shimei is old enough. And yet Shimei becomes old enough, and Tamar sees that she has not yet been given to Shimei to produce heirs so that the name of the family stays alive and is perpetuated. And so what does Tamar do? Well, Tamar goes up, she dresses like a woman of the night, and she, she, seduces the, uh, she seduces Judah, the father of her late husband, and through Judah, she produces children. And so here is the whole point in all of this and blessing this, and asking that she would be like, uh, that, she, that Ruth and her children would be, uh, that they would be like Tamar and her children, is that there is this woman who is rejected, and betrayed, and cast out, and shamed, and put down, and marginalized, and yet God saw her, and God looked on her with kindness, and gave her family anyways. You look at the stories of these three women, these women who dealt with barrenness, and brokenness, and betrayal, and envy, and guilt, and hatred, and strife, and shame, and rejection, and dishonor, and shame, and God was on their side. And God stepped into their mess, and God redeemed. He brought life out of what was dead. He brought healing out of what was broken. That God did not abandon these women. And so when the villagers say, may Ruth be like them, they're asking, would God see fit to bless Ruth as he blessed Rachel, as he blessed Leah, as he blessed Tamar? Would God before her, not against her. Would God act to redeem her? And so we see the story continue in verse 13. 
So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and lay him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, of course, Boaz and Ruth marry, and they they have a son, and the Lord gives, just like he did with Rachel, and just like he did with Leah, and just like he did with Tamar, he gives conception, and he gives a son. And so the women of the village, remember those women who were kind of gossipy and a little bit, yeah, uh, little, and back in chapter 1, they now come around, and they encourage Naomi. And they bless Naomi, and they, they praise the Lord. They said, blessed be the Lord. The Lord has provided a redeemer for you, Naomi. The Lord has given to you a redeemer. And in verse 15, it might seem like, like uh, verse 15 is in reference to Ruth's son, but I actually think it's in reference, first, the first part of verse 15, I actually think that's in reference to the Lord. So the Lord shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age or a sustainer of you in your old age. Well, how does God restore the life of Naomi? How does God sustain her in her old age? Because he's given her Ruth. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So Naomi takes the child and puts him on her lap and Naomi becomes a redeemer, or Naomi becomes a, a grandmother for her. And the women of the neighborhood name the child, and the child's name is Obed, which is probably short for the name Obadiah, which means servant of the Lord. That Obed or Obadiah is going to be a servant of Yahweh, that he's going to serve his family, and that he's going to continue on. And of course, Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse's the father of David. And so the story ends by giving this sweep of generations in verse 18. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Ammon Nadab. Ammon Nadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse, Jesse fathered David. And so it, lo- it ends kind of where it began locating this in history and locating the story of Ruth uh, in the line of, of Judah and in the line of King David. That through Boaz comes King David, and of course through King David will come the Messiah. And so we see that the end of this chapter r- resolves all the tension, that Naomi has a son again, and Ruth has a husband again, and the land has a family again, and all the obstacles are overcome, and that other redeemer's out of the picture, and Ruth and Boaz end together. Everything has a bow on it. Everything ends. And we started off, we started off this uh, preaching through Ruth by noting um, that the book of Ruth really it kind of belongs with what we would today call the wisdom literature with, with you know, some really depressing books in the Bible called Job and, and Ecclesiastes and Lamentations and Proverbs and Psalms. And all of those books in their own way are trying to address the problem of suffering. 
trying to address how, if we live in uh, God's world, if God is a good creator, if God is really kind to us, God, what, why is there this brokenness and this evil? And so we saw, we saw in the first week how Job tries to answer that and Ecclesiastes and all the other books try to answer this. Ruth's answer to suffering is this. God will provide a redeemer. That God will provide a redeemer. That, that at the end of the day, that God will not leave his people without a redeemer, that he will restore their lives and sustain them, that, that God has not abandoned his people and he hasn't neglected his people, he hasn't forgotten about his people, and he will provide a redeemer. Which is really good because there are a few things, there's a few things about Ruth for that don't quite add up. There's a few things about the story of Ruth that are nagging questions that the book kind of just leaves hanging. And it doesn't provide an easy answer for it. doesn't provide a simple answer. And it kind of points beyond itself. I was, I was reading a, a book a couple weeks ago as I was preparing to work on my dissertation, and it's a, it's a um, helplessly dense book. I'm not recommending it as a reading book, although it's, it's still good. Anyways, in this book, it talks about how in the whole Bible, that God, by his providence, arranged the events of the Bible and the particular writers of Scripture so that they would culminate in the New Testament. And so it was by God's design that there's these unanswered questions at the end of Ruth. It's by God's design and his kindness that Ruth would point beyond itself to the future, that Ruth would point beyond itself to to the greater Redeemer, to God's ultimate answer to suffering, to God's ultimate brokenness. So I want to I spend some time meditating on how this book, but this chapter in particular, points forward and points up to the greater Redeemer to come, points forward to the greater Redeemer, uh, the person of Christ himself. So here's the big unanswered question. Here's, here's where we're going with this. Um, you kind of... If you read your Bible, you kind of should understand where this other Redeemer is coming from a little bit. Maybe not to this extreme, and yet you kind of understand why he might be a little bit wary to marry a person from Moab, because there was a curse on the people of Moab that was given in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6, we see this. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam and said, The Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. There's a curse on the country of Moab. So you kind of understand a little bit, that makes sense that probably this other guy is a little bit hesitant because he knows if he marries him that he takes the curse on himself. And Boaz cannot deal with the curse. Boaz is completely inadequate to deal with this problem of, of, of a curse that there has to come some, along someone down the line who's like Boaz but better than him who, like Boaz, can redeem Ruth and her family, but who can finish the job, who can deal with the curse. There has to be a better Boaz. 
Of course, Jesus refers to himself in these terms in the book of Matthew. Matthew 12, he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he refers to himself as the better Jonah and the better Solomon. He says that, that someone better than Solomon, someone better than Jonah is here, and it's not too much to say that someone better than Boaz has come. That God has given a better Boaz, a better redeemer, a better savior, a better kinsman, someone who can actually deal with the curse. We need a better redeemer. We need someone, and Ruth needs someone who can come from the country of Moab, who who can bear this curse for them. And of course, we know from the book of Matthew, among other places, that the Messiah himself does come from the country of Moab. In fact, if you look at the genealogy at the opening of Matthew, Matthew 1, verses 1 through 18, I'm not going to read through all those names because I'll still stumble over them. Um, you see that in that genealogy of Jesus, there are four women that are mentioned by name. There's Tamar, who we've already encountered. There's Bathsheba. There's Rahab. And there's Ruth. Four women are named in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 18, 1 through 1, 1 through 18. What do all four of those women have in common? All four of them are from outside Israel. Of course, the Messiah was from Israel. He was Jewish to the core. The Messiah came from Israel for Israel. But the Messiah also came from the nations for the nations. He came from Moab for Moab. He came from Ruth for Ruth. That if the Redeemer is going to come, the Redeemer has to be one of us. And of course, we see this in the book of Hebrews, that Christ comes as a human. That Not only is he God, but he's also a man. Hebrews 2 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That the Messiah, the Redeemer, will come, came from us for us. That he is one of us, that he had a zip code, that there was something human about him. There's everything human about him. Boaz, when he marries Ruth, takes her curse upon himself. And the Redeemer is going to have to do the same thing. That if the Redeemer is going to come and the Redeemer is really going to provide salvation, if he's really going to provide redemption, if he's really going to save us, then he's going to have to take our curse upon himself. And this is exactly what Christ did. Galatians tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That if the Messiah is going to come, he's he's going to have to bear our curse. He's, He's going to have to bear our guilt. He's going to have to come and bear our shame. He's going to have to come and he's going to have to be cursed on our behalf so that we don't have to be. This is what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien called the you catastrophe. By that, he meant the good catastrophe, the good cataclysm of the cross, the, the good disaster of the cross is this, that Christ became our curse for us, that he died in our place on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. The Redeemer is going to have to bear the curse. We also see that the Redeemer will be a servant It's not a mistake that they name their child Obed or Obadiah, that they name him servant, because whoever the Redeemer is going to be in this chapter, uh, from this chapter, the Redeemer is going to have to be one who serves others, who serves others by becoming a curse for them. And of course, we see this uh, in the book of Isaiah referring to Christ. 
says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, my Obed, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. The Redeemer is going to come and serve the people of God by dying in their place on the cross for their sins. We also see in this passage a strong implication that whoever the servant is, whoever the Redeemer is, the Redeemer is going to have to bring life. That redemption is for resurrection. So this is why verse 15, and why I drew your attention to verse 15, is so important. It says, he shall be to you a restorer of life. Someone who brings life out of death. Someone who makes what is useless useful. Someone who brings the, the light out of darkness. Someone who can turn the curse around. The, the Redeemer who comes is going to have to be someone who can, who can bring life out of this brokenness. That's why, that's why it's been so important that the land stays in the family. That's why it's been so important to emphasize again and again and again that not only does the land stay in the family, but that there is a person who can come and a person, uh, that there's going to be a person who can come and perpetuate the name of the dead. That's why it's going to be so important that there's going to be someone, a redeemer, a messiah, a, a, an obed, a servant who can come and who can bring death out of, or bring life out of death. And of course, this is, goes back to the earliest pictures in the Old Testament, the picture of the redeemer that we see in the book of Job. Job 19 says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my flesh has been thus destroyed, after I waste away, after worms have eaten me, after there is nothing left in this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another my heart faints within me. Redemption is for resurrection. Whoever the Redeemer comes and whoever the Messiah comes, whoever the servant is going to be that comes, it's not going to be enough that he's going to bring forgiveness. He will do that. It's not going to be enough that he removes the curse. He will do that. But he must bring life out of death. And of course, we know that Christ himself has accomplished that. That Christ himself has come as our kinsman redeemer and he has borne our curse upon himself and he has suffered in our place. And what is more, he is risen from the grave. That he lives. Redemption is for resurrection. We also see in this passage a strong implication that not only will the curse be lifted off of us, but the curse will be lifted off of this broken world. 
that, that, that whoever the Redeemer is, that he, when he comes, when the Messiah comes, when the servant comes, he, it's, he's, not only going to, he's not only going to lift the curse off of us, but he's also going to make this broken world new. He's also going to come and he's also going to lift the curse off of this broken planet so that as Robin read earlier, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more brokenness. There will be no more crying. We see this perhaps most eloquently in the letter of the Apostle Paul. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved." Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That not only will the Redeemer come and lift the curse off of us, the Redeemer will come and lift the curse off this broken world. The bonds of futility will be broken and burst, and we will live in a world made new. And this redemption, this redemption of us, this redemption of our brokenness, this forgiveness of sins, the the curse that is taken away, all of this is meant to be to the praise of his glorious grace. The book of Revelation tells us that after all is achieved, that the Son will stand in the throne room, standing as the Lamb who had been slain. And Revelation tells us this, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God provides a Redeemer. In this broken world, in this futile world, in this world where it seems like injustice gets the last day, where, where we see that not everything that we want is made right, and we, we see those who are oppressed, and we see those who are marginalized, we see those who are forgotten and betrayed, we, we suffer these things ourselves, we can have confidence that God has provided a Redeemer, and that one day everything will be new. He will wipe every tear away from our eyes. God has provided a redeemer. And so as we're turning to apply this last passage, this, uh, this last passage from the book of Ruth this morning, that's a good place to start. It's that God has provided a redeemer. That your brokenness that you feel, your shame that you feel, your frayed relationships, your, the, the things in your life that you wish you could take back and you wish you could turn around and, and that thing deep down that you're hiding that you don't want to share because, because you just are so ashamed of it, God has provided a redeemer. 
God's provided someone who can make what is broken whole and who can make what is dead alive and who can bring life out of death. God provided a redeemer who can make what is worthless worthy and who can make what is useless useful. God provided a redeemer. And therefore, we need to trust him. It's not like Boaz doesn't know he can't deal with the curse. It's not like Ruth and Naomi are under any illusions that Boaz is some superhero. They trust that God has a plan and that God's going to work these things out. And God has provided a redeemer, and so therefore we need to trust him. And that's really hard because we look at the things in our life and they seem really big and we can't bear them up. And it's hard for us to imagine someone who can. It's hard for us to remember that, that God really can redeem this. And that God really can make what is broken whole. And he really can make those things that are frayed and fractured healed. And if we're honest with ourselves and if we're honest with the people around us, we're honest with others, maybe sometimes we're tempted to say we're worried that he's not enough. That he's not, and sometimes maybe we're tempted to say, I don't, I know that he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But God, I just, I don't know if that's going to be enough for me. And so maybe you're, you're here this morning, you need to hear this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Whatever the burden is that you are carrying, whatever the brokenness is that you feel, whatever the shame is that you're, that you're bearing, give it to him. He's enough. The, the guilt that you're carrying around, the, 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 the forgiveness that you're trying to earn back, friend, Jesus is enough for you. Maybe that means that there's some deep confession, some deep things in your heart that you're going to have to drag out from that pit where you've buried them so no one will ever have to look at them again. You're going to have to give that to him. But I, I can tell you this, he's enough. He's enough when our, when our uh, cup is running over and he's enough when our cup is empty. He's enough when we feel honor and he's enough when we feel shame. He's enough when we're at the height of the mountain and he's enough when we're at the deepest, darkest valley and it seems like there can't let there be, get there be any light in. Jesus is enough. And you can trust him. Let me also say this. There is no substitute for walking with integrity. Oftentimes, God help us in our suffering, we are tempted to use suffering as an excuse for foolishness. At least I am. I don't know about you people. And we're tempted to to use that as a justification to say things we wouldn't normally say and to do things we normally wouldn't do and to think things and to desire things that we wouldn't. And we we say, well, I, I do you know what I've experienced? I deserve this. Christian, you, at the end of the day, will feel far more joy, far more satisfaction if you walk with integrity. If you do what you know is right. It's not like you don't know those things are right. It's not like you don't, it's not like you don't know not to give into the temptation. And I will promise you that that temptation that is afflicting you is trying to deceive you into thinking that it is more satisfying than resting in the cross is. I'm, I'm telling you, There is no substitute for integrity in suffering. And finally, let me just say this. Well, let me say two things, actually, now that I think about it. Um, 
it is funny how I think almost every sermon that I have preached here so far, with the exception of one, has tri- has drawn attention to the community uh, in Scripture, and you see community everywhere, and that's not on purpose, but that's just kind of the Bible. It just kind of comes out because there's community everywhere in the Bible, and you even see that in this passage. That it's not Ruth herself who worships. It's not Naomi herself who worships. It's the community around them. It says, may the Lord be blessed. And so, Christians, you need that encouragement from others. You need others to remind you of how good and great and big God is in your life. And they need that from you. Hebrews 10.25 says what? Let us not neglect gathering together as is the habit of some. Why? So that you may encourage one another all the more as the day draws near. So even in these times of suffering, as we are waiting for final redemption, let us not grow slack in encouraging one another and and building one another up and of, of pointing each other to the mountaintop and saying, I know you're going through the pit. I know you're going through the valley. I know it's a rocky road. I know it's tough, but the mountaintop is just a little bit farther away. It's just beyond another summit. It's just, just stay on the road. And sometimes you need that, and sometimes others need that from you. We should be a community that encourages one another all the more to wait and to eagerly long for the day of redemption. And finally, as we are waiting for redemption, we're waiting for all that is wrong to be made right and all that is broken to be made whole. Let us worship together because that's where the story of redemption ends. It doesn't end with to the praise of Boaz, and it doesn't end to the praise of Ruth, and it doesn't end to the praise of Naomi, as great as those people are. It ends praising the Lord. And the suffering and the brokenness of your life is meant to bring you to your knees and worship. It's meant to cause you to submit your heart to him in glory and in exaltation and all that he has done for you. I was struck. I was watching a worship service of a church that I know whose pastor had, sadly enough, had disqualified himself. And I was watching the worship service of the week after. And the pastor who got up to preach, one of their elders, said something along the lines of this. It was very striking. I won't forget it. He says, I know where we're all at right now. I know we've just all been humbled and we just feel like our earth is shook underneath us. And we feel, But can't you feel the worship in this room? Suffering and the redemption that we feel through it is meant to lead us to worship. And it's meant to glory, us to glory in our great God. So let's end our service with that right now. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you are a God who brings us to glory in you. We thank you that you are a God who brings us to exult in the cross. So, Father, now as we close our time in Ruth, would you fill our lungs with praise? And would you put the songs of Zion on our lips? Because we know that it is so much closer than it was when we started this morning. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.